Welcome, and thank you for tuning in to the Graceland Church Podcast. Our mission is to follow Jesus and love our neighbor for the good of the city. He is risen. He is risen. I hope you're enjoying this incredible Easter weekend weather. Am I right? This is unbelievable. This is a demonstration of the power of God for this Easter weekend. I was enjoying it yesterday, uh, driving around with my 11-year-old daughter in our neighborhood, Cameron Farms, and I've just taken to heart that one of my assignments as a father is to thoroughly embarrass my children. Anybody with me? I mean, like, yes, I want to teach them to know the Lord, yes, but I really want to thoroughly embarrass them. And so we were driving in our neighborhood, and we were rocking out to two of the greatest songs ever written. And I know we got a lot of songwriters in the house. I think you're going to agree with me. The first one was Eye of the Tiger by Survivor, (laughs) featured in Rocky III. All the windows down, my stereo almost all the way up. In fact, we were going by Daniel Ferreira's house. He's one of our neighbors. And I was singing it as loud as I could. And then the next song, equally as good, The Power of Love by Huey Lewis and the News, featured in Back to the Future One. Who's with me for those two songs? Yes, yes. I was having a moment of glory in this weather. My 11-year-old was ducking down so no one could see her and looking at me saying, Dad, stop, Dad, stop. This is crazy. And I, I took it to the extreme. Every time we saw a jogger or a dog walker, I told my daughter, I said, there's some people right here. And I sang it louder and I yelled and my voice is a little hoarse because of this special moment I had with my daughter yesterday. For me, it was a moment of glory. For November, it was a moment of suffering. <laughs> And speaking of my family, in case I don't know you, this is my family. My name's Nathan Kolar, honored to be our lead pastor here at Graceland. That's my wife, Jessica. Uh, Far on the right is the 11-year-old I was just talking about, November. And then Kensington, our second daughter, Nessa, our third daughter, and Clay, our little son. And uh, when I look at a picture like this, one of the things that I'm so amazed by is that all of these children came into the world from my wife, which if you've experienced that, you know the craziness that I'm talking about. And every pregnancy, and she's sitting right here, by the way, every pregnancy and birth, rather, that she had, had one trend that was similar. You know, the pain started getting a little bit greater, and she's a very, very strong woman. And so she would say, oh, I'm good. We could still kind of talk through the contractions. Oh, is that as bad as it's gonna get? All right, I'm, I'm good. But then inevitably, with all four of them, the pain got to the point where the only adequate word is suffering. I mean, it is like, it is a a threshold of pain, not to scare anyone out there. (laughs) There are drugs available. She just decided not to use drugs. So take the drugs. If it was me, I'm drugging up. She did not use drugs. (laughs) So she she just suffered through it. And I mean suffered as a warrior princess But then when the suffering was over, the glory could not be denied. And there's this relationship between suffering and glory. One of the things I love about Jesus is he meets us in our suffering and leads us into glory. And in this series that we're starting today, we're going to look at the Psalms. Today is Psalm 22, and it's titled Suffering and Glory. We're going to look at how this Psalm connects with the message of Easter, and we're going to juxtapose two key passages, Psalm 22 and Matthew 27 and 28, and the account 
of the death and resurrection of Jesus. A bit of the context before we start reading. A week ago was Palm Sunday, and then we began Holy Week. And then, of course, Good Friday was two days ago, and it's the day that Jesus was crucified on the cross. And that's where we pick up in Matthew 27, verse 45. From noon until about three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Ali, Ali, lema sebachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the most anguished cry in all of human history. And it reminds us, number one on your notes, Jesus suffered. We sometimes, I think, make too much of the divinity of Jesus. Not that you can make too much of it, but we focus on that and we make too little of the humanity of Jesus. Scripture tells us that Jesus wept. At times, Jesus groaned in his spirit. We also sometimes forget that God, our Father, is a wildly emotional God. Think about it. He loves fiercely. He celebrates wildly. Scripture says he dances and celebrates over you, his, be his beloved. He mourns. He burns with holy anger and justice, and we are made in his image. And one of the things that I find so encouraging about not only the Psalms, but the whole account of Scripture is that God's word addresses the full spectrum of the human condition, from the depths of suffering to the heights of glory. Jesus was actually quoting Psalm 22 from the cross. Listen to some of the context about Psalm 22. It was written a thousand years before the crucifixion of Jesus. A thousand years. So we're, imagine going back to 1021, right? That's a thousand years ago. It was that far before the actual crucifixion of Jesus that David penned these words. It is therefore a prophetic psalm. It is prophesying about something that is yet to come. And it's a messianic psalm in that it's painting a picture of the Messiah, the Christ, the promised one who would someday come. And it paints the picture of his crucifixion and the glory of his resurrection. Before we get into the psalm, I'm gonna read a quote from Robert Godfrey. Psalm 22 begins with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? These are the words that Jesus took on his lips at the depth of his suffering on the cross. His suffering was unique at that point as he offered himself up for the sins of his people. And so we have tended to see this cry as unique to Jesus. But such an approach to these words is clearly wrong. Jesus was not inventing unique words to interpret his suffering. Rather, he was quoting Psalm 22, verse 1. These words were first uttered by David, and David was speaking for all of God's people. We need to reflect on these words and the whole psalm as they relate to Christ and to his people in order to understand them fully. So let's look at Psalm 22, verses one through two. David cries out a thousand years before the crucifixion of Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from my cries of anguish. My God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. And I'm struck, first of all, by just the first four words of this psalm. Think of it. It is a, it is a prayer of anguish, the lack of rest, the feeling of being forsaken, yet the first four words, my God, my God. And one of the themes throughout the entire book of Psalms is to struggle with God, not away from God. 
And that is a wonderful invitation. It means that no matter where we may find ourselves, the invitation is to not run from him, not isolate from him and struggle over here alone, but to start whatever we're about to pray with, my God, that's a powerful truth. And I've seen it a hundred times. Oftentimes when someone is deeply battling, they run away from what they need the most exactly when they need it the most. And this is tragic. So the Psalms invites us, struggle with God. Jesus, by quoting the Psalms, invites us, struggle with God. Number two, when you suffer, you do not suffer alone. A psalmist has suffered with you. Jesus has suffered with you. Your church family will suffer with you and sit with you right in the midst of it. A friend of mine and and my wife's, Dr. Daniel McNaughton, said this. In the church, we don't talk about where we are. We talk about where we want people to think we are. And the beautiful thing about the Psalms is it invites us and it teaches us the imperative. You've got to bring your reality into the house of God. You've got to bring what's actually going on in your heart. Psalms invites us in another Psalm, pour out your heart to God. You do not come here and put on a mask and pretend to be something. You do not here in this place worry about what someone is going to think about you. You do not do that. You are with your church family and you lay it out and you understand that even in your darkest moments, you might be there right now. You might be suffering thinking, how am I gonna get through this day? You might be going through motions. You might be trying to cling to a little tinge of hope, but actually knowing where the despair is gonna settle back down in your heart this afternoon or tomorrow. And it's an all too familiar fear. It's an all too familiar place. And I just wanna beckon to you that I want you to understand we are with you in that, but you've got to let people into it. And my prayer is that we would be a church that doesn't try to offer quick solutions or easy answers, but will just offer the ministry of presence just being with each other. And what a gift to have that invitation from the psalmist and from the words of Jesus himself. So that's Good Friday. Now, of course, today we're celebrating the resurrection on Easter Sunday. So let's get to it in Matthew 28, starting in verse one. After the Sabbath at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. There was a violent earthquake for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven And going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, now I have told you. Number three, Jesus overcame. We must remember that today. He overcame sin, death, the grave, all our guilt, all our shame. He overcame the evil one, all of our sin, past, present, and future. I love how 2 Timothy 1 verse 10 says it. It has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. We must remember that death has been destroyed by the overcomer. And in the midst of this suffering, a thousand years earlier, David spoke to it in verses three through five. After articulating his anguish, he says, yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. 
In you, our ancestors put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. To you, they cried out and were saved. In you, they trusted and were not put to shame. Going down to verse 16. Dogs surround me. A pack of villains encircles me. They pierce my hands and my feet. All my bones are on display. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my clothes among them and cast lots for my garment. But you, Lord, do not be far from me. You are my strength. Come quickly to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of the lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will declare your name to my people. In the assembly, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, honor him. Revere him, all you descendants of Israel. For he has not despised or scorned the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him, but has listened to his cry for help. So what did David do in the midst of suffering? The next theme from the Psalms. He remembered the faithfulness of God in the past. He recalled it to mind. I believe that even as David was writing those words, and we can feel it rising up in our heart, even as we read them, he probably wasn't feeling it. He probably was just declaring what he knew to be true, though he felt forsaken. And we must remember today that Jesus has overcome, and more specifically, Jesus has overcome for you, personally, right in the middle of all of your brokenness. He comes in and he says, I overcome all of this. And he hasn't done it when everything was perfect. He hasn't done it when you deserved it. He enters right into it and says, here's the good news. Into the darkest corners of your soul, light has come. Good news has come. A way forward has come. That's why we can rejoice. Number four, you overcome through Christ. You overcome through Christ because you believe on his name. That's it. You believe what he said to be true. In 2 Timothy 1, verse 9, right before verse 10 that I read earlier, it said, he has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Now, I can't say that I know this for sure to be true, but I believe that every one of you and that myself were in the heart of God, known by God, way before the beginning of time. I believe that. I believe you were so wonderfully and fearfully and beautifully knit together. Of course, a lot of this is in scripture. What I can't verify is the exact timing of it. I, I really think you've always been in God's heart. You are being outside of time like God is outside of time. Of course, this life we're living on this side of eternity is within the framework of time, so much so that we can't even comprehend that there is no beginning and that there is no end. But what this scripture is saying is that this grace was given to you in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. So even though the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus happened in one specific moment, of course, God foreknew that grace that he was preparing specifically for you. And I've said this before, but don't think for a second that you're a better sinner than he is a savior. This has been planned since before the beginning of time. Your salvation, the way that is here for you, what we are celebrating today, the work of Jesus is done. 
All the heavy lifting is done. You are free and you can rest in his, in his, in his finished work. Though you feel unfinished, you can rest in his finished work. There's a story that I've heard preachers tell. I think I heard it from my father. I have no idea if it's true, but the principle is true. Billy Graham, probably the most famous evangelist of our generation, was driving in a small town through a state that he didn't live in on his way to a conference that he was preaching at. And he was speeding because Billy Graham was a sinner too. Let's just say it. He was speeding. Billy, I'm sorry. I'm not throwing you under the bus here. I don't know if this is true. He got pulled over. He got a ticket. He was probably, like I do sometimes, not that I've ever been pulled over, but like I do sometimes, I hope they recognize me. Hey, this is a pastor. This is a preacher. Let's, let's give him some grace. I'm sure Billy was thinking, maybe this guy knows me. I am world famous. He gets the ticket nonetheless, 250 bucks. Since he's out of state, he has to go to the court to deal with the ticket. Huge hassle. He shows up at court. He's probably hoping at this point that the judge is going to recognize him, and he goes before the judge and the judge happens to be a very good judge who is a follower of Christ who does recognize him, though he doesn't acknowledge that. And he looks at Billy Graham and he says, Billy Graham, were you speeding? And Billy says, yes, I was. And the judge places the gavel down, finds him the $250 and said, you were held in, uh, you, you were found guilty by this court. You must pay your fine before we can release you. Uh, Billy Graham says, okay. But then the judge takes off his, takes off his judgely robe lays it down, steps down off the podium, walks down to Billy Graham, pulls, pulls out his wallet, and hands Billy Graham $250 cash. He puts his wallet back in his pocket. He walks back up to the podium. He puts his, his, uh, his judgely is not a word, but bear with me here. His judgely, I was thinking priestly, his judgely garment, I'm just gonna stick with it, back on. And he says to Billy, do you have the money for your fine? Of course, Billy says, yeah, I have it right here. And he gives it to him, and the judge says, paid in full, you're released. That's the picture of the gospel, of understanding what's been paid for us. Because in fact, you are guilty. And because in fact, I am guilty. That's the thing that's so tricky about this shame and this guilt. And that's why it can be so hard to cling to the promises. You know why? Because we know ourselves. We know where we have fallen short. We know all our inner realities. We know the things that are not good. <laughs> My dad used to say this to the congregation he pastored when I was growing up. He's, and I've said it here before. He said, if you, if, if you knew everything that was in my head right now, you'd walk out of here and never come back. But if I knew everything that was in your head right now, I would kick you out of here and say, you're never welcome back. Like there's a whole inner reality. And sometimes we, we, are, we feel that shame, therefore it's hard to cling to the promise. But the gospel is above and beyond that. The gospel says, yes, you're guilty, but here, I've paid the fine for you. Yes, you're guilty, but here's everything in your hands. So when we are called to account, like we are, it's how we feel every day. Hey, my, my life is coming to account right now. God, what is this day gonna look like? What's coming at me? And we either choose to have the, 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 the crushing weight of sin, guilt, and shame. That's real. And some of us have lived under it forever. Or we choose to say, wait a second, you paid in full. Let me remind myself. Let me preach the gospel to myself. Let me understand who I am. I can walk in this freedom right now. Tracking with me? And that's a theme in the Psalms. Recall the faithfulness of God. You can make the choice today, right now as I'm speaking, to put your faith in Jesus and say yes to the fact that he wants to pay the price for you. I heard someone say this, and it's, 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 it's kind of a, um, it's a statement that isn't completely true, but I love the heart of it. The stone 
was not rolled away so that Jesus could get out, but so that we could get in. And I love that. He was doing all of this for us, which he was destined to do before time even began. And then reading on in Matthew 28. So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus, so all of a sudden there he is. He met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. Number five, Jesus is alive. When we talk about following Jesus as the primary piece of our mission statement and what he has called us to do, we must remember we are following the risen Christ. He is indeed alive and active in the world and moving in and through our lives. And in Psalm 22, verses 27 to 31, the psalmist a thousand years earlier starts to even prophesy to this living, victorious Christ, all the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations will bow down before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. Future generations will be told about the Lord. They will proclaim his righteousness, declaring to a people yet unborn, he has done it. Those are the last four words of Psalm 22. He has done it. We go from my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm in anguish and I have no rest and you're not even answering my prayers to understanding that we're not suffering alone, but we're with him to understanding that we can recall all of his faithfulness in the past. And now the third theme of the book of Psalms, hold to the promises of God for now and forevermore. He has done it. He has done it. It's like every time we're, we're in the secret place with God in prayer or we're in our car calling out to God or we're in our bed not sure what to do, we can work through all of those things just like the psalmist does over and over again in the Psalms. The promise is for you, number six. You have been raised to life through Christ. And perhaps my favorite verse in scripture is Colossians 3.1. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. He's alive. He's seated at the right hand of God. You have been raised with him. Like the song said, this has resurrected me and you are called to set your hearts on things above. And I like how a pastor named Chris Hodges said it. Jesus didn't come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. And it's such a gift to remember you know, because the, the world really kind of misunderstands, our culture misunderstands what we're doing here as the church. They misunderstand what we're all about. They think, they think that my whole life as a minister is to try to help people to just be a little bit better. It's, it's called moralism. If you will just be a little bit better, God will love you. And you better be careful. God's really angry at you for not being good. And he's, he is so disappointed with you. And if you could just be a little bit better, he would love you and your life would be a lot better and go to church for a long time so you can figure out how to be good and you can do well all the time. And that is the opposite of the good news of Jesus. That is the opposite of resurrection power. Resurrection power, what Jesus actually did was go down to something that is dead and call it to life. That's what he's done with us. That's the gospel I'm responding to. And then he does call us into a holy life, but it's in response to his resurrection power declaring you to be alive, actually raised with Christ. And I wanna close with this powerful clarification and then we're gonna take communion. What do we do when we feel forsaken by God? 
What do we do when we're suffering? I have felt forsaken, but I don't think that I was. If you have ever felt forsaken, I don't think that you were. But when we study scripture, we learn that Jesus was actually forsaken by God because he was doing a different thing. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. So in that moment that Jesus cries out, scripture is teaching us that Jesus became sin for us, therefore was forsaken by God. Also that we could become the righteousness of God. And look what Jesus said before ascending to heaven. And it leads to this so important closing truth. Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He's now the risen Christ. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And note this, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. In other words, Jesus was forsaken, so you would never be forsaken. In other words, even when you feel forsaken, you are not forsaken. Even when you are suffering to points that you have no idea what to do, you must recall to mind, I am not alone. The enemy wants you to feel forsaken and actually believe that you are forsaken and would love to convince you that you are actually condemned by God, believing things like this, God does not love I have crossed the line, and I don't think I can ever come back. He would love to get you to think that you will not be welcomed back into the arms of God. Brennan Manning, one of my favorite authors, is the one who who said, he thinks that one of the key litmus tests at the end of our life is going to be, did we believe that God really loved us? And the reason I believe you can start your prayer of anguish with my God, my God, is because you have a certainty of his love, a certainty. Through all things, in every season, no matter what your emotions or your heart or people around you would tell you, have you realized this yet? Your emotions are an unreliable friend. Amen to that? Even your heart is an unreliable friend. Scripture talks about how the heart can be deceivingly wicked and our own heart will deceive us and it will try to tell us you're not with God. You're not even lovable. There's no way you can walk in the blessing of God. No way you can walk in the promise of God. Let me just tell you, that is a lie. That is the core lie from the pit of hell that the enemy wants to get you to believe. That is the core lie because it will keep you away from talking to God. It will keep you away from fellowship with the body. Do you know how many people have told me, I can't come to church, I'm gonna get struck down by lightning. And they're kind of joking, but they're not. They don't think they're actually gonna get struck down by lightning, but they're gonna think they're not welcome. They're gonna think they don't belong. When the church is for the drifters, it is literally for the outcasts. It is for the people that don't feel like they belong anyone else that have wandered so far, they feel like they have no other chance. That's what it's for. Here we are together. Brennan Manning called it the ragamuffins. His famous book is called The Ragamuffin Gospel. Here we are, ragamuffins alike. Even though we put on suits, by the way, do you, big boy pastor look? 
Sometimes. Doesn't matter what we put on, we're still a ragamuffin. I don't care how good you look, you're a ragamuffin. You're in need of the grace and mercy of God, and so am I. And we can rejoice in that together. And we can welcome our neighbors into the family with zero pretense, without worrying at all about what's going on in their life. Don't need to clean anything up. Come to the table, there's a seat for you. That's the invitation. And it's the invitation to you this morning as we celebrate Easter. Can I have the band come up? We're gonna take communion. If you don't have a communion pack and you'd like to participate, raise your hand. And could someone bring me a pack as well? Because I forgot to get one. Thank you, Jim. Jim will bring you one too. If you just raise your hand up for a second. Communion is when we remember what Jesus has done. Thank you, Jim. Go ahead and peel off the top layer to take the bread out. The longer I live, the more I like partaking of communion as much as possible. Perhaps we'll do communion more and more in our church family. I like what Martin Luther said. If you could see how many knives, darts, and arrows are every moment aimed at you, you would be glad to come to the sacrament, talking about communion, as often as possible. Because what we're doing every time we take communion is we are preaching the gospel to our own soul. Find rest, my soul, in the Lord. Find rest in the finished work of the Lord. Understand, I've been invited and I have a seat reserved for me at the table. That is the message. Do you know that you are invited and there's a seat with your name on it at the table of the living God? Did you know that? All you have to do is say yes. All you have to do is come and sit down. And that's what remembering when we partake of this sacrament. And man, we gotta tell our neighbors about this. We gotta tell them there's a seat for you. We gotta tell the people in our culture who feel like the church has abandoned them, nope, there's a seat for you. Come on in and let's remember the gospel that he loves us and he loves our neighbor and he's made a way for us. Lord, we thank you for your body that was broken on our behalf that causes us to be healed and whole. In 1 Corinthians, when Jesus had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake, church. Go ahead and open up your juice. Jesus said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Lord Jesus, victorious King, living Christ, we thank you that you shed your blood for us. And church, let's make it personal. Thank you that you shed your blood for me, for the complete forgiveness of all of my sin. I thank you. I thank you. And I remember as I drink today, let's drink, church. Church, let's stand together. We're gonna sing this song, King of Kings. Let's let our hearts rise up and worship the one who saved us. Church, if you haven't yet, with your eyes closed, just tell the Lord, I receive this great salvation, Lord. I receive this gift of you paying the price for me. 
and I commit my life to you. I want to follow you for all my days. Or maybe you are someone that has just been suffering. I feel like, I feel like God has given me like a glimpse of the pain in your heart. You're just suffering. And you're just in anguish. If that's you, just pray in your heart. Pray the prayer. My God, my God. It feels like you've forsaken me. I feel like you don't answer my prayers. And I have no rest. But I choose right now to call to mind that you are a faithful God. And I choose to remember what you have said to be true, that you love me. Help me to receive your love. Help me even in the midst of suffering to say yes to my place at the table and to just sit down with the family. Lord, I pray that the peace of your presence would transcend all understanding right here and right now. And that it would transcend all understanding later today and tomorrow for those that are hurting and don't know what to do. But we take to heart the invitation of David and the invitation of Jesus to struggle with you. Help us to struggle with you. Help us to recall your faithfulness. Help us to hold to your promises. Help us to doubt our feelings. Help us to doubt our doubts. Help us to hold out hope that you are in fact there. And you are in fact faithful. Pour out your peace upon my sisters and my brothers today. We celebrate that you are alive. We celebrate that you are with us. We celebrate that you have conquered death and the grave. We celebrate that you have made a way for us. We celebrate that you have forgiven us of our sins. You have covered us with your grace. You have made a way when there seemed to be no way. We celebrate that today. Whether we feel it or not, we believe you are God. We believe you are above and beyond. All things in our small world that we don't understand. You are greater. We trust you in Jesus' name. Amen. I encourage you to just, just like we're worshiping right now, just in his presence. I feel like I could sing that chorus for 24 hours. <laughs> Find space in your home or in your car. I encourage you. This song is called King of Kings by Hillsong. Put it on. Find something that you resonate with. And in the midst of whatever you're in, just worship the Lord. Spend time with him. That's what it is to struggle with him. If you have not been baptized, I want to personally invite you to sign up to get baptized on April 25th. It's just a little less than a month away. Talk to me. I can answer any questions you may have. We have a way the water's gonna be cleaned and all that. We have a few in the house here today that are getting baptized. Some of our kids are also getting baptized. So excited, so thankful. Uh, don't hesitate any longer. If you're going all in as a father of Jesus, we wanna baptize you. If you have sensed the temptation like so many to isolate during this season, during this year during this past year and a half, I just want to encourage you to prioritize connection with the body. 
we need connection with the body. We, we, we can't be with the body unless we're actually with the body and pour out our hearts and spend time. So take advantage of all the things on this card. All these things are coming up. We're also going to have summer community groups that Heather Hule is putting together. All of that stuff, we, we, we encourage you. We can't do it for you. It takes you stepping in and engaging. So we encourage you to do that. And you can communicate with us on the connection card. I'm going to pray this benediction uh, and we'll be dismissed. But before, one more time, he is risen. He is risen indeed. May the celebration of resurrected life bring new hope to your being. May the victory, I can't stop crying. <laughs> May the victory over earthly death turn your eyes to the promises of heaven. May the empty tomb help you to leave your sorrows at the foot of the cross so that God's hope, God's promises, and God's forgiveness reign in your life forever. In Jesus' name, amen.